were you uh, okay with that video or did it make you feel a bit uncomfortable? Not all of us are comfortable when we get labeled sinners, right? It seems harsh. We, we feel condemnation. Some of us just push hard against that label. Others of us, many of you here this morning generally who are, those of us who are church-raised, we, we have heard traditional gospel messages. We get the idea that we are all sinners. If you're church-raised, you've heard the Apostle Paul's words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, like over and over and over again. But even though we've heard these words over and over, and even though we're not offended when we hear those words, sometimes the reason that we're not offended is because we really don't get what they mean. We're not offended when, hey, maybe we should be. Today, we wrap up our quick look at four stories that Jesus told that uh, all mess with us just a little bit. Today, we're going to see a story that, uh, in Jesus' thinking, reminds us that the first are often last, that the weak are often the strong, and because of Jesus, the lost are found and the humble are lifted up. We'll look at yet another story where Jesus flips the script. And perhaps this morning, you need to have the script flipped about what you believe. Let me take you to what the Apostle Luke wrote in chapter 18 of his gospel about Jesus. And he starts with a, an explanation of why he's about to tell the story he's going to tell. I'll be starting in verse 9, and it'll be on the screen, but you can follow it on your Bible, on your phone, or a paper one if you brought one with you if you want. So Jesus kicks this story off, making it like blindingly clear why he has to tell this story. Luke says that some of Jesus' followers, and get this, were too confident in their own righteousness and looked down not just on some people, but they looked down on everyone else. Well, aren't those nice people, eh? Self-righteous, holier than thou, looked down on every other people, felt superior to everyone else. And before you quickly exclude yourself from this group, let me talk about the growing tent city in our downtown. This week, uh, Mayor Corey Vincent of the Salvation Army posted this on, on his Facebook page. Like many municipalities and larger centers, Fort McMurray is coming to grips with the growing issue of homelessness and, as of late, homeless encampments. I have been personally been hearing many conversations around our community concerning the issue and how the city should be doing more to remove this problem from our streets. It has been interesting to hear these conversations and even more heartbreaking to hear the lack of understanding compassion that we now reflect as a society. Major Vincent continues, I cannot help but notice that these voices of rejection and unacceptance are never heard until the homeless leave or are forced to leave their discreet encampments in the wooded areas on the outskirts of our community. It is not until the encampments begin to rise on our streets and we're forced to see the ugliness of poverty, addictions, generational trauma, prostitution, and severe mental health issues that we begin to see the ugliness of what the majority of us hold in our hearts. Let me ask you, how do you react when you see the growing number of homeless people in our city? Maybe you need to keep this image of our own tent city in mind as we go into this parable today. This is a story that Jesus told. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other man, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a summer Sunday, and some of you are going as we get to the last of our parables. Finally, we get a parable that I can understand. Don't be like the Pharisee who is self-righteous and arrogant. Instead, be like the tax collector who is humble and repentant. I get it. And then you're thinking, this can't possibly be a long sermon, right? So let me just bust that bubble right away, all right? This is an eight-point sermon. I've got four observations about the Pharisee and four observations about the tax collectors. They are not original to me, but I think they're real helpful. And don't get too worried. I'll move quickly. So let's get going. First observation I want to make about the Pharisee in the parable is that the Pharisee has one strange idea about what prayer is. Just a little bizarre. Luke says he stands up in the center of the temple. I mean, why would he do such a thing? Because he wants to be seen, right? He wants to be observed. He, he wants to make himself a big deal. He's, he's drawing attention to himself. Hey, this has never been cool in the eyes of Jesus. Some of you will remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray, standing up in the temple and on street corners. Why? To be seen by others. But here's what I want you to do. Go into your room and shut the door. The Father who sees you in secret will reward you richly. Prayer and pride are a toxic combination. Friends, never mix the two. Rather, prayer is, is mostly to be private and humble between you and God. So this Pharisee, he's like on thin ice right from the beginning of his prayer. And then when you look at the content of his prayer, it's really not a prayer at all. Let me quote one Bible commentary. The Pharisee is not asking, he's basking in his own self-righteousness, which is, you know, not cool in the eyes of Jesus. The second observation I'd like to throw out there is this Pharisee focused on his external behavior instead of on the true condition of his heart. In this prayer, he boasts to God that he is thankful. Oh, God, I am thankful that I am better than, right? I am not like these other people, a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer, someone who lives in a tent city. But remember that Jesus one time said to be careful about only looking at the externals of your life because maybe what's going on on the inside tells a little bit different of a story. Remember these words of Jesus? You've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. Well, of course, don't murder, right? But I tell you, whoever gets angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who calls another person a fool is in danger of the fires of hell. This is an internal kind of standard, right? Jesus, says, Jesus continues, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Of course you shouldn't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at another person lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Quick time out. 
Have you ever looked at somebody on site, around the office, uh, in the community, or at church for that matter? Ever looked at somebody uh, and the thought occurred to you, well, there goes a loser, right? I don't like this type of person. I, I hate that accent. There's something wrong with what they're wearing. Have you ever devalued somebody just, just quickly in your own mind? I mean, you'd never admit it publicly to anybody. It's not part of your external persona, but inside, you got that judging thing going on. Ever do that? Have you ever thought about having a, a sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse? Have you ever uh, looked at certain stuff for too long, got, got on your phone or your tablet or your laptop and looked at stuff that's destructive? You're, you're not going to commit adultery. No, no, no. But there's that other thing that goes on, right? People with a bent towards self-righteousness rarely put the magnifying glass over the inner workings of their, inner, of their human heart because doing so would expose the kind of ugliness that they claim to be free from. They are quite content to look at the externals of their life where they claim to be better than others. My third observation is this. The Pharisee has a jaded view of spiritual practices. He says, I am certainly superior to other people because I fast twice a week and, and I give a tenth of all I earn. I'm superior. Anything wrong with fasting or, or tithing? No. Jesus calls us to do both. He, he asks us to give and fast, but never for bragging rights. Jesus made uh, this crystal clear in the Sermon on the Mount. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. What do they do? They, they disfigure their faces to show other people that they're fasting. In so doing, hey, they have their reward. When you fast, wash your hair. Clean your face so that no one will know you're fasting. The Father who sees in secret will, he'll reward you. Keep your fasting between you and God. Don't let anybody know. Jesus made the same point about tithes and offerings. The point is, be very careful about how you think about your spiritual practices. They are not meritorious in and of themselves. You, you don't get merit badges for these things. They... They are never meant to be used as, you know, scorekeeping cards to figure out who's more spiritual and who's less spiritual. The Pharisee in this parable had unwittingly developed a, a jaded view of spiritual practices. His practices fed his pride, which is the exact opposite of what spiritual practices should do. Our, our spiritual practices should, should remind us how desperately we need God at the center of our lives and how willing we should be to engage in any practice or any discipline that will keep God at the center. Which leads me to fourth and final observation about the Pharisee in the parable. The, the Pharisee blatantly plays the comparison game, which is just never a good idea. Just how bad of an idea is the comparison game? One time, the Apostle Peter played the game. It's found in John's Gospel. Uh, Jesus had just pulled Peter off to the side to tell him about his future. He said to Peter that his life was going to have tremendous impact, that he'd experience a considerable amount of suffering and persecution along the way. I mean, Peter is, is sobered by all of this. So he looks over at the Apostle John standing nearby, and he asks Jesus, 
well, is John's future going to involve suffering and persecution too, or, or is he going to get the easy road? Jesus listens to that question and he responds, Peter, what is that to you? Don't worry about John's journey. You worry about your journey. You, you need to get your act together first before you worry about John. Because, friends, when it comes to comparing with one another, we should be concerned about our own journeys and not compare ourselves with the spirituality of other people. When you, when you compare yourself to someone else's growth, it, it's never apples to apples, apples to apples because we just don't know the full story of the other person's walk. So those are the four observations about the Pharisee, which brings us to about half time in the message here. Need a break? Cup of coffee? An energy drink? Just asking. Okay, let's look at the tax collector. Here's the first observation. The tax collector really is a bad guy, okay? I mean, let's not romanticize him. He overcharges people tax money that goes to Rome, and he lives off the margin. He would be a Jew, but he would extort his fellow Jews. He'd do this partially for Rome, but mostly for his own sake, and heck, there is nothing that you could do about it. How would you feel if someone worked for the CRA and was deliberately overcharging you to impress his boss and doing it so that he could take part of that overcharge money and pay off his second mortgage on a rental home now that interest rates are so high? And what if he did this year after year after year and it was perfectly legal? You would despise that person. You would hate him. Tax collectors were the most despised people in the first century. They were sleazy turncoats. They were greedy and self-serving. So let's not make this guy the hero of our story. He's a bad guy, friends. Jesus is the hero. Second observation. This tax collector did have a conscience, and it did start to bother him. I, I know a little bit how this works. Sometimes, you know, I... I admit that sometimes I can maintain a, a kind of behavior that, that I know is wrong and it just doesn't bother me that much. And then I wake up one morning and I go, God, what you did there was wrong. And, and my conscience gets pricked and I go, yeah, oh man, this can't continue. And, and that's the Holy Spirit at work and, and it's a good thing, right? Luke tells us that this tax collector had a, a, a bad enough conscience that when he came to the temple to pray, he, he, he stood off at a distance, right? In, in contrast to the Pharisee who went straight to the middle of the temple, wanted everyone to see him right at the center of the room, this tax collector has a guilty conscience. And he goes, I can't take my place in the center of the room. I'm, I'm going to stay my distance where, you know, off to the sides where a guilty person should stay. And there's another little phrase there that suggests that the tax collector was dealing with a stained conscience. Luke says he would not even look up to heaven. He's at a distance, but he's looking at the floor. And, his, and this tax collector just felt so guilty. He, he stands at a distance. He won't come to the center of the temple, and, and he can't look up to heaven. Wow, right? Just stares the floor. Have you ever felt so guilty about a wrong you committed, a, a series of wrongs maybe that you committed that you couldn't even look up? 
Yeah, right? It's, it's tough, right? In, in Psalm 38, David says that, that his guilt makes his heart pound, his bones ache, and he groans all day long. I can identify with those words. Can any of you? So let me move quickly to the third observation. This tax collector knows he needs help from above to deal with his guilt. His guilt is killing him, and he knows he can't fix it himself. He, he comes to the temple looking for help from above. He, he feels so guilty about his greed and all of his wrongdoing that the next thing he does is he, he beats his breast. This is a, a first-century custom, widely practiced. When you lost a loved one, like if your child died or your spouse was murdered or something like that, and you couldn't stand the level of heartbreak and bereavement. The Jews in the first century would just beat their breasts. It's like saying, my heart, my heart can't take this. So here's a guy standing off to the side of the temple. He, he can't look towards heaven. He, he's, he's just burdened by his guilt and he's bereaved and crushed. And he just can't stand it one more day. I was thinking about a gesture that I and some of you do when we feel guilty. I, I, I just put my hand on my forehead and go, no. Oh, no, that's maybe when I feel stupid. But anyways, so here's a guy, right? Seriously, the, the, this, this, this tax collector, is, he's heart sick, right? He, he reminds me of an alcoholic who bottomed out for the first time. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're an addict of some kind and you know what it's like to bottom out where you hit that moment and you go, can't live like this, no more. And you stumble your way into a recovery group and you say these words, I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol or whatever the addiction and, and my life has become unmanageable. I believe that only a power greater than myself can, can restore me to sanity. That's what this guy was saying. My guilt has made my life unmanageable, and I need a power greater than myself to restore me in some way. By the way, if you're struggling with an addiction, I plead with you to walk into some sort of recovery room, AA, an addictions recovery program. If you need help and direction, let us know. We're here for you. But this tax collector guy has had it, right? He's bottomed out. Fourth and final observation, this tax collector prays. He prays a perfect prayer. It's probably the first one he's ever prayed, and, and he hits bullseye. The Pharisee prayed a bizarre prayer. I'm so glad I'm better than everyone else. But here, the, the tax collector, just starting out with his first prayer, he, he gets it right. He simply says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a terrible sinner. And it's not a flowery prayer. It's a simple, succinct, and gut-level honest prayer. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul who once called himself the chief of all sinners, the, the poster child of wrongdoers. This is the exact sentiment of the tax collector. He's not making excuses. He's not blaming anybody. He just has this overwhelming awareness that he's a terrible sinner and that he can't fix himself. This tax collector feels the weight of his sin. Have you ever felt the weight of your sin? Friends, it's 
really the only way to forgiveness, healing, and wholeness. So, so this tax collector is, is at the periphery of the temple, and, and he can't look towards heaven. He, he's beating his breast, and he's going, I'm screwed. But he prays a perfect prayer. If there is mercy available for someone as sinful as me, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then he learns about what Jesus did, shouldered our sins, put our sin on himself, dies an atoning death, imputes, infuses his righteousness to us so that we're made perfect in God's eyes. The Pharisee. Now, if any of you were here last week for my beautiful illustration of a chart that I put up on, on righteousness. The Pharisee is pegging himself way up there on the moral perfection scale. He's saying he's better than every other human being, almost as good as God. His plan is a little more fasting, a little more giving, a few more acts of kindness, and, and he's going to flip over and be as good as God. That's where he pegs himself. He puts That's his plan. He puts his X right up there, right near God on the scale. Contrast that with the tax collector who goes, I'm screwed. I mean, unless God has mercy on me, I'm done. Then comes the punchline where Jesus, literally, he steps out of the parable he's talking about, and he says, here's what I want you all to know. It is the tax collector who goes home justified, not the Pharisee. For the word justified, that's a kind of a theological word. So here's a memory aid. Some of you know this one. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. When Christ bears your sin, imputes his righteousness to you, he puts you in a standing before God that's just as if you never committed a single sin. Not a one. That's how God sees you through what Christ has done for you. God views you as sinless. Can you imagine that? And Jesus says the tax collector goes home justified just as if he had never considered, committed any sin before God. This would have disturbed Jesus' listeners a lot. I mean, wait a minute. The model citizen gets slammed and the greedy crook goes free. What's up with that? It's not fair. I said last week that pure grace rarely seems right or fair. Pure grace disturbs people. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago where a guy just, yeah, literally shook and said, that's not possible. No, it can't happen. It makes some people worry that the wrong people are benefiting from this wonderful thing called grace, which is exactly the case that wrong people do. Isn't it? Wrong people do get grace. Heck, I'm one of the wrongdoing people. And I identify with the Apostle Paul when he calls himself the chief of sinners. You know, he had to bottom out and had to reach out for what Christ could do for him by his mercy uh, and, and his grace. Which, by the way, is why I choke up when I sing Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. I, I love, love that hymn. And so the tax collector goes home justified just as if he'd never sinned. And that Pharisee is shooting for merit badges or something like that, still on his self-improvement plan, thinking he's going to flip over and be perfect soon. Friends, you become a true follower of Jesus. There needs to be a moment of horror in your life when you realize that you really do stand before a holy God. 
And then comes a moment of abandonment where you abandon the self-improvement plan and instead you just throw yourself on the mercy of God. And when you experience a flood of grace that pours into your life and realize for the first time that you're justified in God's eyes, it's just as if you've never committed a single sin. There's such a moment of joy that is so awesome, just so awesome. And that's what fills you with wonder, not just for a day or a week or a month. You get filled and refilled with amazing grace, and, and it turns you into a gracious person. It turns you into somebody who wants to extend grace. It turns you into a humble person because you've got nothing to brag about. You've got nothing in your hand that you brought to the king. got nothing, but you receive saving grace. Let me wrap up by asking this question. When was your moment when you saw your true condition, agreed with it, and abandoned the self-improvement plan? When was the moment when you cried out humbly, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's the cross or nothing. When was the moment when for the first time you realized that you were washed clean by the work of another? You didn't clean up your act. It got washed clean, white as snow. When do you remember first feeling justified that it's just as if I'd never sinned because of what Christ did? It's the greatest feeling a human being can experience. I'm going to give you a few seconds right now so that every heart that's listening to me can become clean. I mean, if you've never prayed this simple prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, you can pray it now. I'll let you do some business with God. Just throw yourself on God and ask for his mercy, and then I'll close in prayer. So, yeah, this is your moment of prayer. Just a few seconds alone with God, and then I'll pray. God, by your Holy Spirit's power, give people here right now courageous hearts. God, remove deception and spin. Stop the running and hiding. Help us to admit honestly the condition of our hearts. Help us to abandon some self-improvement plan as a way to get right with you. Give people throughout this room the courage uh, to make that desperate plea, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lead people here even now to pray that prayer. God, thank you for doing what we can't do for ourselves, for this disturbing supernatural thing called grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.